Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime Podcast. I am Ashwarya, your host for this episode. And I'm Aryan. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon and subscribe for amazing exclusive features like merch, awesome extra episodes, early access episodes, video calls with us and more. To help the podcast out and to avail these benefits, go to www.patreon.com/desicrime and select a tier that works best for you. By 1976, five people are dead within a small radius around a house in Bangkok. This house belongs to wealthy gem dealer Alain Gauthier and his wife Monique. But as of now, nobody had successfully drawn the connection between Alain and the deaths of foreign travelers on the hippie trail. But that was all going to change. Simultaneously, two couples are working to reveal the truth about Alain. and the people around him dutch diplomat herman knippenberg and his wife angla and nadine here and her husband remy and now these two couples are about to meet to make history welcome to part 2 of the bikini killer welcome to the story of charles sobraj All right, so Ashwarya, thank you for leaving us on that cliffhanger. No, thank you. That was annoying, but we're back. Dominique has escaped. Nadine and Remy have helped him, but we have no idea if he reaches France safely, if he sees his parents, if he makes it back to the land of baguettes. He was just a young boy. Please tell me we're beginning the episode with Dominique. We are. We're beginning this episode with Dominique. No, 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 no. We're beginning this episode with Dominique returning safely. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Dominique, along with two other people that Alain had kept captive, escaped that night. Not much information is available on the other two, and so we don't know the details of who they were and where they are. But Dominique escaped. In France, Dominique met his parents again, and he began a long process of healing. from what he had just managed to come out of he was so close to being killed he had been made sick for so many months now he was certain he had witnessed the beginning of multiple murders of innocent young people just like him he needed healing but dominique wrote to nadine and remy thanking them for their help in saving his life he would never forget what the two had done for him All right, a question that was on my mind and I I think even Dominic would have thought about this, you know. Yeah. He was made sick deliberately, right? Right. But why wasn't he killed? Why was his life spared by the infamous gem dealer? So I think this is simply a fact that if Alain and Monique killed everyone around them, <laughs> they would have to do all the work on their own, which I'm sure they didn't want to do. 
Allah had specifically found Dominic to help Monique with house errands. So the aim was to make him so sick and dependent on the two of them that he never wanted mm, to leave. That makes sense. And just became this meek character cleaning the house and cooking food and cleaning dishes. But now Dominique had escaped. Now that Dominique was safe, let's get back to Herman and his own personal investigation. An investigation he's conducting by going against what all his superiors at the Dutch embassy want him to do. But an investigation Herman believes he has to take on. An investigation he simply cannot ignore for the sake of respecting his seniors. An investigation he, as a human being, must conduct. So that countless parents can have the peace of knowing how their child died and find the hope of possible justice. But as of now, Herman doesn't know of the previous murders. All he knows are the stories of Hank and Cornelia. By this time, Herman has been sent the letters that Hank and Cornelia had written to their families. Those letters clearly mention the couple meeting a wealthy gem dealer named Ala, who they had befriended. Herman knew he needed to begin looking for this gem dealer. On one random night in 1967, while his investigation is still ongoing, Herman is out eating dinner with a friend. This friend is Belgian diplomat Paul Simons. As Herman is telling Paul of his investigation and the man he's trying to find, Paul's facial expressions begin to change. Just to clarify before you dive into that really interesting dinner conversation that's about to ensue, <laughs> these are both European diplomats. Correct. Paul being a Belgian diplomat, a country in Europe, and Herman being a Dutch diplomat. Correct. Yes. And the two men are friends and they're having a dinner conversation. And as Herman is telling Paul of his investigation and the man he's trying to find, Paul's facial expressions begin to change. He looks shocked, almost as though he has something to tell Herman the moment Herman completes his next statement. Paul begins to tell Herman of a weird incident that had transpired at the French embassy a few weeks ago. A French woman had come to the French embassy crying and hysterical, claiming that she was neighbours with a gem dealer who she believed was committing not just financial fraud and identity theft, but was also a serial killer. The French embassy did exactly what the Dutch embassy would have done with the cases of Hank and Cornelia. They ignored it. They told this woman that her case was better suited for the local police. This woman told them she couldn't take it to the police. This gem dealer had connections with the local authorities, but the embassy said they could do nothing. But before leaving, this woman left the embassy a diary belonging to a couple. A couple she believed had been killed by her neighbour. Herman knew what he had to do. He made his way to the French embassy the very next day and found the diary. Alright, so hold on. Okay. We have Netherlands into the picture. Yep. We have Belgium into the picture. Yep. And now we have France into the picture. Absolutely. This is one hodgepodge of European countries. All in Bangkok. All in Bangkok. Mm. This is the hippie trail. That's what I was talking about. Mm. It's all these people mushed into one Asian country together in the middle of nowhere, a language they don't understand. It was a cool time. You know, this is the annoying thing about running this podcast yeah. where every time it's like, 
you know, I I feel like being proud about things Indians are doing, and you know, we're bringing together Europeans together. You know, yeah. taking them by the tail. All of a sudden, I realize I can't really be proud about it because there's a murder who's doing murder who's doing all of yep, this. Yep, and the murderer is Indian. Well, so, oops. oops. Herman made his way to the French embassy the next day and found the diary. When he opened it, he saw inside pictures of the two people he had been trying to bring justice to for the last many weeks. It was Hank's diary, with countless pictures of him and Cornelia. Inside the diary, however, was also a contact card, a card belonging to gem dealer Alain Gautier, with his exact Bangkok address on it. the address to kanith house since herman now had alas address and he knew this woman was alas neighbor he ended up going to the house where this woman would live hoping she still lives there he knocks on the front door and the door opens inside is the woman he was looking for inside is nadine he invites nadine and her husband over to dinner at his house to discuss the claims she had made to the french embassy Both the couples meet for dinner at the Knippenberg household when Nadine recounts her story to Herman and Angela. She tells them everything. She tells them how her loneliness led her to become friends with Alain and Monique. She tells them about Dominique and his escape. She tells them of the countless tourists she had seen come into Kanith house whose belongings including their passports are still inside that house leading her to believe they were all killed. She tells them how she's continued to maintain her friendship with Alain and Monique so as to steal more and more evidence from the house and finally reach the truth of who these people are. Herman cannot believe the story he's hearing. What he assumed to be the murder of one Dutch couple has turned into a tale of a serial killer who shows no sign or reason for stopping. After hearing all this, Herman knew he had found a partner for this investigation. Nadine and Herman devise a plan. Nadine was going to be taking a camera into Kanith house the next time she was hanging out there. She was going to be taking pictures of all of them. In fact, not just pictures of them. Nadine was going to be sneaking into the rooms of Alain, Monique and Ajay and taking pictures of the evidence inside the house. The plan was solid, but incredibly dangerous herman later described it to be quote the most harrowing experience of his life end quote but it needed to be done with all of these pictures there should be enough proof to prove to the cops that the man living inside kanith house was a cold blooded murderer the plan worked out like herman and edine wanted it to Nadine snuck a camera into Kanith house for the first time ever and clicked numerous pictures of the people living inside. On a separate occasion, she snuck into the rooms and clicked pictures of the passports, the random everyday articles belonging to the young people who disappeared and so much more. Through the course of this individual investigation, it became obvious that more than the original 5 had been killed. In fact, Two days after the bodies of Hank and Cornelia were identified, it was revealed by the airport authorities that someone had travelled on the couple's passport from Bangkok to Kathmandu. Both Alain and Monique had changed their identities into those of the couple they had just killed. 
in Kathmandu, the couple ended up making more new friends with other young travelers. They made friends with a young Canadian woman named Laurent Carrier. Uh, uh, uh. Oops. It is, excuse me, madame, it is Laurent Carrier. See, I have to. I speak a bit of French. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> Aryan can actually speak French. And sometimes he can be a bit annoying about it. This was an example of that. Hey, it was the right pronunciation though. I will never get that right. Your for case me, is more accurate now. Thanks to thank my you. pronunciation yes, of Laurent Carrier. For me, this is going to be Laurent Carrier, <laughs> who was 26 years old. And they also made friends with an American Stanford University student named Connie Jo Bronzik, who was 29. Yeah, that's just pronounced. That's Connie pronounced Jo Bronzik. The, yeah. the couple together killed Laurent Carrier and Connie Jo Bronzik and burnt their bodies in Kathmandu. They then stole their passports and exited Nepal and entered Bangkok using them. So now, not only did it seem like Henk and Cornelia were alive because they entered Nepal on those passports, but it also mm. seemed like Laurent Carrier and Connie Jo Bronzik were alive because they left Nepal using their passports. All of this information was insane. It needed to be taken to the cops, the rightful owners of this information and the executors of justice. And so they did. They took this information to the local Thai cops. But the cops chose to take their own sweet time reviewing this information. On the morning of March 11, 1976, Nadine had some bad news for Herman. Alain and Monique were planning to go to Europe for some time. Herman alerted the police, leading the cops into sudden action, who ended up storming the Kanith house that evening and taking Alain, Monique and Ajay into custody. Nadine and Remy breathed a sigh of relief. For once in weeks now, they didn't think their life was in danger. They felt one step closer to justice. But then, Herman's phone rang. Allah was released the evening he was arrested. Mm. He had an American passport, a passport belonging to one of his many victims now, and he used it to prove he wasn't in fact a French gem dealer and had come to Bangkok from America very recently. And since the passport of the victim was stamped for entry into Bangkok very recently, much after the previous murders, the cops believed his story. Just like today, producing your passport as proof was the strongest metric of identification. This man wasn't the gem dealer from the letters, the cops decided. And the three murderers were set free. Herman was done. He had fought tooth and nail to get this man behind bars. And all of this work, including putting Nadine's life in danger, was for the sake of evidence. And all of this couldn't even keep this man in jail for one full day. The case had taken a toll on Herman's life. His mental health was in shambles and his relationship with his wife was shakier than ever. He needed a vacation and the embassy gave it to him. The Dutch ambassador gave Herman three full weeks of leave. But before he left for his holiday with his wife, Herman and Angela compiled documents relating to the case, the Knippenberg Cachet, they called it, and dropped them off at embassies around Bangkok. Wow. 
these people just didn't stop they're called the heroes of this case the for Knippenburg a reason the Knippenburg cache i yep. mean the alliteration is lovely just Incredible. as it is but you know thinking of them just putting it on all embassies yeah that's pretty cool and it had an effect according to cnn when homan returned home from his vacation he received a call from the canadian ambassador for those of you that don't remember monique was canadian Canadian police had visited Monique's parents while Herman was away and a few shocking details had since come to light. Monique's name wasn't Monique at all. It was Marie Andre Leclerc. Marie Andre Leclerc. That is correct. <laughs> According to Leclerc's parents, their daughter had been traveling with her boyfriend and had left an emergency contact. A phone number for near Marseilles, France. No, madame, it is not Marseilles. It is Marseilles. Oh my God! Okay. Wait. Okay, you can go ahead and keep calling it Marseilles then, and every French person listening to this podcast can make fun of you, and they'll go, "Thank you, Ariane. Merci." It is Marseilles. My apologies to the exactly. French people, but when the French police checked. They found this contact was actually for Alain's mother, but Alain's mother wasn't Alain's mother. She was the mother of a man named Charles Sobraj. But she said she knew Alain Gautier. It was one of the many, many, many names her son had used over the course of his criminal career. Sobraj's mother tells the cops a tale of a twisted childhood and a life of theft and murder that was a long time in the making. Hotchand Bhavani Gurmukh Charles Sobraj was born in Saigon in Vietnam in 1944 to an Indian father and a Vietnamese mother. Charles's parents were never married and after his birth his father denied the possibility that Charles could be his son. Due to his mother's move to France and his father's denial to call Charles his own child, Charles was a stateless person for a good period of his childhood before his mother's new husband, a French army lieutenant stationed in French Indochina, decided to adopt Charles. This was a glimmer of hope for Charles, for that little kid a happy home life was seemingly on the way. But the reality was very different. Charles's mother went on to have more children with her new husband and Charles realized he was reduced to feeling second class and neglected in favor of these later children for the sake of earning his own money to gain some form of independence from what he considered to be a horrible household Charles started to commit petty crimes as a teenager and was actually sent to jail for the very first time for burglary in 1963 in a prison in Paris While he was in prison Charles developed a certain kind of personality he developed a charisma and a magnetism and a charm that he began to use to manipulate prison guards into granting him favors nobody else was being given for example Charles was allowed to keep books in his prison cell it was around this time while Charles was in prison that he met and charmed a man named Felix who was a wealthy young man and a prison volunteer after being released from prison charles moved in with felix and this is where he got in touch with the high society of paris while also committing crimes in the criminal underworld 
he began to collect money and gems through theft and scam. It was in this phase of his life, in his early 20s, that Charles met a young Parisian woman named Chantal and the two fell in love. The two dated and eventually Charles asked Chantal to marry him. She said yes, but Charles was arrested later the same day for attempting to run away from Paris police while driving a stolen vehicle. He went to prison again for eight months, but throughout this time, his wife remained supportive of him, waiting for him to be released so that the two could be officially married. Eight months later, the two did get married, and by 1970, just six years before Hank and Cornelia would be disappearing, the two were expecting a baby. The same year, for some reason, the two moved to Mumbai using fake documents where Charles continued his criminal lifestyle. He and Chantal ran a car theft and smuggling business and continued to rob young tourists for money despite the fact that they now had a baby daughter named Usha. Now, all of you that are from Delhi, I'm sure you know of Hotel Ashoka. It's a gorgeous five-star, very close to Cannot Place. In 1973, Charles planned an armed robbery of the jewellery store inside this incredibly fancy hotel. And needless to say, the robbery was unsuccessful. He was arrested and then he faked illness and was released again. So, Charles seems to be a criminal by profession. Yes. And what I mean by that is a psychological proclivity towards being a criminal not not one where it's out of need right not not one where it is him being really mad at his partner so he clobbered and murdered them or not him not having enough food and so stealing for food this seems to be it's almost as if he's not committing the crime for the outcome of the crime but for the sake of the crime itself. It absolutely does. There seems to be a psychopathy to this Mm. man when he's committing these crimes. And sure, it may have started off as an unhappy young boy who just wanted some independence. But it's almost as if the life seemed easy to him and he had this charm and charisma and he got out of the clutches of the police every single time. And he made this his way of life. So, this time again, he faked illness and he was released. He left India with his wife and moved to Kabul in Afghanistan. There, he began robbing hippies that had come to Kabul on the hippie trail and was arrested again. But he was released again. Then he fled to Iran, but this time leaving his family behind. He left and abandoned his wife and child. His wife moved back to Paris, leaving their criminal past behind and vowed to never see or speak to Charles ever again. It was now 1975. Since Iran, Charles had run away to Istanbul and then to Greece with his brother, Andre. Both Andre and Charles committed identity fraud in those two countries, which led to Andre going to prison for a crime Charles has committed for 18 years years. Charles fled and by 1975 found himself in Bangkok. During a short trip back to India in 1975, Charles met Canadian Marie-André or Monique, who at the time was dating a different man. He seduced her, she fell in love with him, leaving her current boyfriend and eventually Charles asked her to leave Canada and move to Bangkok. 
Here, Charles gave her the identity Monique. Monique knew of his murders and of his philandering with other women, but she chose not to speak up. In notes she wrote in her personal diary, she spoke of the conflict she felt between being Marie-André and Monique. Marie-André was an innocent young girl that had moved across the world for love. Monique was an accomplice to murder. She felt torn, guilty, but her love for Charles felt all-consuming. It was a love she wasn't willing to let go of, even if it came at the cost of other people's lives. If there was one person who had the power to stop the killing spree before it got too late, it was Marie-André. But Marie-André was long gone, and Monique was unwilling to speak up. The Canadian cops take in this story that Charles's mother just told them, and they narrate it all back to Herman. Herman had tried to move on from this story during his three-week-long leave. Charles was out, and the story was done. When the embassy doesn't help you, and the cops don't help you, and you begin to lose your mental peace and marriage to the stress, you know it's time to stop, even though you know countless young children were killed for nothing. But this story by the Canadian cops compelled Herman right back into Charles's life. Herman meets up with Nadine that very day and realizes Nadine had also been trying to move on. She tells Herman that Charles and Monique left Bangkok and for the last few times that she met them, there was no sign of Ajay. Nadine also tells Herman that Charles's landlord had planned to rent out Kanith House to new tenants and throw out everything that belonged to him. Obviously, neither Herman nor Nadine wanted this to happen. That house was a crime scene for the murders of perhaps the most notorious serial killer the world had ever seen. Crucial evidence could be and would be lost if the police didn't raid the apartment soon. And so... Herman pulled every string he could, exploited every high-profile diplomatic contact he had and rallied a team of investigators and cops that descended down on the Kanith house. It was, quote, seedy and filthy, end quote. Herman described decades after the raid. They found five kilograms of medicine inside the house and three industrial-sized cartons of liquid containing a drug that acted as both a laxative and a, quote, chemical straitjacket. They also found Cornelia's coat and handbag inside the house. After this raid, the Dutch ambassador, who had tried so hard to convince Herman to drop this case, told him to share the story with the press. According to CNN, quote, Within days, the Bangkok Post printed an explosive front-page story headlined The Web of Death. After that, the Thai authorities took notice. Very quickly, they issued an Interpol notice too. End quote. It was this Interpol notice that broke the case. Ishwara, for our listeners, could you clarify what the Interpol actually is? So, by the way, you all, I've kind of recently become a big Interpol fan. These people are incredible. For those of our listeners that don't know, Interpol is the International Criminal Police Organization, which is an international organization that facilitates worldwide police cooperation and crime control. 
if any of you have seen don't fuck with cats it was interpol that caught the killer in the end if any of you have seen tinder swindler as we mentioned it was interpol that caught the conman for charles sobraj interpol was going to mark the end of an era of murder on the hippie trail by the time interpol got notice of charles and his murders he was already in france on the run yet again but something was different this time he was making international headlines he was all over the news not just in bangkok but also in europe it seemed like the possibility of continuing to run became harder and harder but one country was still left where charles felt like nobody would know who he was that country was india by the end of 1976 charles and marie andre ran to new delhi what the couple didn't know yet was that there was an international arrest warrant against charles who had managed to colossally piss off the indian police that wanted to catch him alive charles returned to india and all through the rest of 1976 continued to murder in india he killed an israeli man in varanasi and a french tourist in delhi listen if there's anything i've learned from running this podcast is you don't colossally piss the indian police nope if you piss the indian police off you're done for and he did that he drugged an entire tour group of french youngsters in attempts to rob them when this tour group robbery went wrong charles was finally arrested in india found not guilty for the killing of the israeli in varanasi and the french tourist in delhi he was found guilty for the drugging and attempted robbery of the tour group and sentenced to india's most notorious prison tihar marie andre was sent to tihar with charles for her part in these crimes however she continued to deny any knowledge of the murders till the very end according to women's health magazine Even though she was sentenced to life in prison in India, this ruling was later overturned after she was diagnosed with terminal ovarian cancer and she was allowed to return to Canada in 1983. She died on April 20th, 1984, when she was just 38 years old. While the love of his life was on her deathbed, Charles was using his charm and wit and persona to be treated better than any other inmate inside what is one of the most understaffed and overcrowded prisons in the world according to sunil gupta a former superintendent and legal officer at tihar charles enjoyed special privileges including food made according to his preferences and conjugal visits not usually afforded to inmates quote prisoners were supposed to stay in their wards but he would roam around freely says gupta who's the author of black warrant confessions of a tihar jailer which is a memoir of his more than 30 years working at the delhi prison a cnn article mentions quote sobraj earned money by drafting court petitions for wealthy inmates and then maintained his elevated status by bribing guards He was also said to have made secret recordings of senior prison officials that would implicate them in corruption. Quote, everyone was scared of him, Gupta said. 
In 1984, Bangkok-based journalist Alan Dawson travelled to India to just interview Charles in Tihar. Quote, Tihar was an eye-opener to me. The prisoners ran life inside the walls and bars, and the authorities handled the paperwork and so on. Even by those standards, Charles was a bit of a revelation. He had a suite of three cells, and the prison warden called him Mr. Charles. From the very start, it was obvious to me that Charles was a con man, seeking control of the situation. He was a good-looking guy and had that swindler's knack of making you believe you were the center of his attention. End quote. And that's the thing, Ashwara. As much as he is a murderer, and yeah. one can, of course, and obviously should frown upon that, he is so smart. He is. Yep. Cunningly smart. I think as we go on into this episode, how smart he was will reveal itself more and more. No. Yep. Just wait for it. Two years after this interview with Alan Dawson, on March 17th, 1986, Sobraj committed perhaps his most impressive escape yet. Not again. Yet again. Sunil Gupta, the superintendent at Tihar, tells CNN that, quote, he was watching a movie at home when a breaking news announcement cut in. Sobraj had escaped from jail. Gupta hurried to the prison where he found a shocking scene. All the gatekeepers were asleep. End quote. Sobraj had thrown a big party for the inmates and the guards for his 42nd birthday. He had offered all of them sweets, which were, obviously, laced with sedatives. I wonder if he has done that before. Who could have seen that coming, right? <laughs> But as a consequence, more than a dozen prisoners escaped that day. Sobraj had just a few weeks to go until his release from Tihar. So why? Why would he run away like this, risking an increased sentence on account of his escape? Because an increased sentence was exactly what Charles wanted. If he wouldn't have escaped, he would have been out of Tihar in a few weeks, making him eligible for extradition to Thailand, where murder charges, especially so many murder charges, are punishable by death. Sobraj would have almost certainly been given the death penalty if he was extradited. But if he got his India sentence increased by running away, the statute of limitations on his Thai murders would expire. A statute of limitation... Oh my God, <laughs> that is so smart. It is, yes. For those of you that don't know, a statute of limitation is a time period after which a government cannot hold accountable a criminal. In Thailand, that time period was 20 years. No way. Yep. While Charles was on the run in India after his prison escape, Herman Knippenberg, who was in the United States getting his master's degree in public administration from Harvard University, had his phone ring. It was his program advisor calling him. Quote, I think you should go underground for the time being. End quote, she told him. Sobraj has escaped from Tihar jail and I think your life might be in danger. Herman didn't believe Charles was stupid enough to go after him all these years later and risk entering the United States. And Herman was right. Charles was nowhere near Harvard University. He was in Goa, sipping a beer at the Coconut Tree restaurant to celebrate his 42nd birthday when he was caught. 
I was like, he's probably, you know, he's far away from Harvard, probably close to Harvard or somewhere. <laughs> he was very close to the jail. He didn't say anything. He went quite coolly, said the owner of the coconut tree restaurant. And it makes perfect sense why he went coolly. He wanted to be in prison in India, so he wouldn't be sent back to Thailand. His prison sentence was extended. The statute of limitations expired on his Thai conviction. And Charles Sobraj, the most notorious serial killer in Thai history, can now never be charged in that country for the countless people he killed on its soil. On the 17th of February 1997, when Charles was 52 years old, he was released with most warrants, evidence and even witnesses against him long lost. I still don't understand something, Ashwarya. Tell me. Why is he killing these people? We'll come to that. No. I don't think it's the answer you want, but we'll come to that. (laughs) Okay. As of now, Charles was out. Without any country to extradite him to, Indian authorities let him return to France. In France, Sobraj lived a life most people, and Aran, I think you, would dream of. He lived in a nice Parisian suburb house. He was paid hordes of money for interviews and photographs. He sold the rights to a movie on his life for over 15 million US dollars. But if you know anything about Charles by now, you know this is not what he likes. He likes the attention, the thrill, the chase. He loves the idea of poking at the authorities and getting away with it. It reinforces his own belief in his intellect. And so, in 2003, he travelled to the one country on the face of this planet where he could still be arrested. Nepal. According to the Himalayan Times, he had returned to Kathmandu on the pretense of wanting to set up a mineral water business. A few days after arriving, he was spotted by a journalist for the Himalayan Times in a casino in Kathmandu. The journalist followed in Sobraj's steps for two weeks and wrote a news report in the Himalayan Times with photographs of him. The Nepalese police saw this published report raided the casino Sobraj used to frequent and arrested Sobraj, who was still gambling there. The police reopened the Nepal double murder case from 1975. Remember when two days after the bodies of Henk and Cornelia were identified, Charles and Marie Andre used their passports to travel to Nepal, where they ended up murdering a Canadian woman? Yep. They had murdered Laurent Carrier, who was 26, an American Stanford University student, Connie Jo Bronzik, who was 29. Yeah, I'm not correcting the pronunciation anymore. Thank you. <laughs> that is appreciated. They had used their passports to exit Nepal, making it seem like both Henk and Cornelia and Laurent and Connie were alive. This was the case that Nepal reopened. The district court in Kathmandu sentenced Charles to life imprisonment, all because of Herman. How Herman, you ask? I'll get to that in a minute. But before that, let's get to perhaps the biggest question one can ask about this case. It's the question Aryan just asked. Why? For petty travellers' checks and fake passports? For power and infamy? Why would he do this? Was he just a straight-up psychopath? 
journalist Alan Dawson, who had interviewed Charles in Tihar, kept coming back to this question. Why? This case was never a whodunit. It was always a whydunit. Sobraj had himself never given a convincing answer to this question. Dawson said, quote, Well, he never had a good answer. He implied that if I was going to write a book on him, then the answer would be that all those white people had corrupted and ruined Asia by trafficking opium. And therefore, his reasoning was that today's white people deserved to die for it. End quote. But Dawson knows that's not the true reason. Quote, to find the motive is why I went to Delhi to see him. And here I am more than 35 years later and still have no real clue. End quote. After Alan Dawson, another big journalist interviewed Charles. It was Oz Magazine's Richard Neville. Neville said, quote, I had a crude theory of Charles as a child of colonialism revenging himself on the counterculture. Instead, I was dazzled by a brilliant psychopath. End quote. According to Neville, whenever he asked Sobraj why he committed the crimes, he said, quote, I never killed good people and drew from psychoanalysis and global politics and Buddhism to create a cosy world of rationalization and extenuating circumstances to justify his crimes. His claims that his life was a protest against the French legal system or that his love for Vietnam and Asia motivated his criminal career are absurd. But as tools of psychological manipulation, they are very effective. End quote. When Neville asked Sobraj what makes a murderer, Sobraj replied, quote, Either they have too much feeling and cannot control themselves, or they have no feelings. It is one of the two. End quote. That's a damn good answer. That's a great answer. You know, I, this is the thing, right? I understand. There is... You can't sympathize with a person like that. You, 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 your logical part of you tells you do not sympathize. But as Neville said, he is a brilliant psychopath. He really was. And I think that's evident from every interview Charles has ever been a part of. Do you have an audio of him? We do. It's coming very soon. But with this answer, it's one of these two. They either have too much feeling or no feeling at all. Charles never revealed which one of the two applied to him. He did not say. <laughs> it's been 50 years since Charles committed his first murder. But even today, how many people he truly killed is unrevealed. Twelve are confirmed, but the number could go as high as 30. When asked how many people he has robbed and stolen from, he says that number is somewhere in the hundreds. Is pick a person or a mm. couple, drug them. Yes, that's correct. Take their passport mm. and any valuables they might have and move on. Mm. That's correct. How many times do you think you did that? I did so many times as I found. 20? 120? Maybe 100. Okay, you all. That was the voice of Charles Sobraj. But I cannot end this episode in good conscience without telling you where all the people in this story are today. Thank you. Of course. What are they doing? How have they moved on with their lives? Charles Sobraj, the anti-hero of this tale, is in a prison in Nepal, 77 years old, having undergone multiple heart surgeries and in poor health. 
His love, Marie-Andre, is long dead and probably a distant memory in his mind. I wonder how often he thinks of her, if he thinks of her at all. But Sobraj is currently married. In 2008, while in prison, Sobraj announced of his engagement to a Nepali woman named Nihita Biswas, who eventually also was a Big Boss contestant. <laughs> what? Yup, and their relationship is real. <laughs> the authenticity of their relationship has been confirmed multiple times. The two are, in fact, very much in love and married. Big Boss. Big Boss. You know, I'm not going to lie. If there is a Big Boss, it is probably Charles Sobraj. Oh my God. Oh my like God. The Illuminati. The Illuminati. <laughs> Charles Sobraj it is. We've uncovered something We've on We've uncovered here. something. But Nihita Biswas stands by her husband's innocence, claiming none of the courts in any of these countries had enough evidence to convict him. You know, you all, I find it very hard to feel hate even for some of the worst killers we've covered. I feel bad for the mess inside their brains but not hate. But for Nihita Biswas, I cannot help but feel a strong internal hate. I have no idea why. Nihita Biswas, thanks for speaking with Times Now from Kathmandu. Now, outside court, you repeatedly accused the justice system, the judicial system of being biased. This was a murder trial, Nihita. Why do you say that injustice was done to Charles Sobraj? I think the base that the court uh, pronounced the verdict yesterday was right. completely insufficient to keep any man behind bars. I mean, because in India, he has been acquitted in all the cases. So no wonder how they can use any material from Indian court saying that he was convicted in India. And that's why he would be also convicted in Nepal. That's what they did. And we have been fighting all these years, proving that the prosecution has presented the fake documents, fake photos, fake guest registration cards, and fake document materials only sent by a personal private party from uh, Holland, by Mr. Nippenberg, and which has never been sealed, which has no stamp or no any purpose uh, that can be taken as evidence. That was the voice of Charles's wife. Herman Knippenberg, the first hero of our story, was in Wellington, New Zealand in 2003, having woken up to his first day of retirement when he gets a call from a friend. Sobraj, who had been living in France, had just been arrested in Nepal and charged with the 1975 murder of a tourist couple in Kathmandu. Just like to everyone else, Sobraj's decision to travel to Kathmandu was a curious choice to Herman too. Nepal was the only country in the world where he was still a wanted man. Under questioning from the Nepalese police, Sobraj denied he had ever previously visited Nepal. But Knippenberg knew he remembered something about Nepal. He ran down to his garage where there were six boxes of documents related to the Sobraj case. He pulled out the statements made by and the letters written by Marie-Andre or Monique through the course of her relationship with Sobraj. In multiple of those, she had described in detail the time she spent in Nepal with him. He sent those documents to the FBI immediately. Quote, I think it goes too far to say that I was directly responsible for his conviction in Nepal, though my efforts indicated to Nepal police 
what there was and where to look for it end quote come on kinnipenburg take the credit he's being too humble this man has been the key piece yep he's incredible even when he was retired yep absolutely according to cnn quote when he reflects on the case that absorbed the better half of his life kinnipenburg also 77 now believes it got under his skin because he saw injustice Knippenberg says I was confronted with a situation in which innocent people were losing their lives and nobody lifted a finger. I saw that as the complete failure of democracy. End quote. Herman now permanently lives in New Zealand and is 77 years old. To my disappointment and to the disappointment of I'm sure many, Herman and Angela divorced in 1989. Today Angela Knippenberg is Angela Kane. and is happily married to an american man she remains a successful diplomat with the united nations and is the vice president of the international institute for peace herman remarried too and has a happy and loving relationship with his wife i wonder if had herman never received that letter from cornelia's brother-in-law would the couple still be together today hmm. nadine and remy the other two heroes of our story continued to live in Thailand oh, for yeah. many years after Charles and Marie Andre fled the country they chose to live private lives after that rarely speaking of the events that transpired the two eventually returned to France and again to my disappointment oh. divorced a few years later dominique is safely back in france where he had to start his life from scratch according to an article by screen rant quote Though he rarely talks about Charles Sobraj and what happened to him all those years ago, he's spoken briefly about his experiences in the past, shedding some light on what it was really like for him during those months in Bangkok. End quote. He eventually met his wife Theresa in France and became a father. He now has two grown-up children of his own. According to the interview, Dominique is now the treasurer of the local billiards club in his hometown where he organizes billiards competitions and is said to take the role very seriously. <laughs> Ajay Chaudhary, Charles's right-hand man, mysteriously disappeared before the couple fled Bangkok. Many believe he too was one of the couple's many victims. There have been some sightings of him in Germany, but none of them have ever been confirmed. And with that you all we reach the end of this mammoth case. Charles is alive and married too, which is not terrible fate for someone who killed 12 and possibly 30 young people just on a journey to figure their lives out. He has support in his wife and his lawyers who even today are trying to appeal his case. But from everything we know, there seems to be no remorse in the heart of this man for the crimes he's committed. Is this enough justice for the families that lost so much? Is this enough justice to those who escaped like Dominique? Is this enough for us to do as a society? I don't know. What I do know is that Charles Sobraj isn't the rare case of a crazy psychopath. History has and will continue to see others like him. Which is why as we always say, stay safe, stay crazy. Stay desi.